Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Hello, hello, and welcome back to our podcast. I have a very special guest today who is a graduate of Georgetown and Columbia Universities and the New York Freudian Society. Erica Commissar is my guest, and she's a psychoanalyst, parent guidance expert, and author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, as well as her most recent book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Erica is a psychological consultant, bringing parenting and work-life workshops to clinics, schools, corporations, and childcare settings, including the Garden House School, Goldman Sachs, Shearman, and Sterling and SWFS Early Childhood Center. And she's appeared on major media networks such as CBS, ABC, Fox, and NPR. She's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Daily News, and Fox 5 New York, as well as a contributing editor to the Institute for Family Studies. Erica and I are going to talk about ADHD overdiagnosis, overmedication, the possible real causes of ADHD behaviors, and the theory that ADHD is actually a response to stress in our environment. I'm honored and super excited to welcome Erica Commissar. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, definitely. I just have to, again, point at this uh, interview that you did about two years ago, a little over two years on Fox and Friends, uh, where you, uh, you really hit a nerve there for me. Like when I watched it, I was like, wow, you are speaking straight, not afraid to say how it is. You have a lot of experience. Um, and I just want to get right into it. Like you mentioned something that I heard and I can't get it out of my head, which is that ADHD as a response to stress. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, I always start with what is ADHD mm-hmm. for you? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about ADHD. Um, it, you know, people think ADHD is a condition in and of itself rather than um, a symptom of another condition. So I think that's a really important distinction. Um, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and sometimes we just say ADD now. Um, but but the idea is that it's distractibility. And, um, you know, what we know is it's the brain's response to stress. It is um, what we call hypervigilance, a hypervigilant response to environmental stress. It is fight or flight. It is the flight part of the fight or flight response. So we know the fight or flight response is the evolutionary response that human beings have to to coping with stress, right? So if a predator is running after us, we, you know, we fight that predator or we run from it. So the distractibility, um, the attentional issues have to do with the flight part. And so that automatically assumes that 
a child or an adolescent um, is under stress, but we don't dig to understand what's causing the stress and to deal with the, the motivation or the cause of the stress rather than just dealing with um, the symptom, right? So as a society, we like just to deal with symptoms. Well, that's, and, and I'm going to borrow another phrase from your interview. Um, you were talking about, you know, parenting with pills. Can you say more about that or reaction to those symptoms, right? So um, the answer is yes, uh, we are trying to, in many cases, help our children with their pain, but in doing so, we're silencing their pain or the, we're silencing the symptoms of their pain uh, with, with medication. And I don't want to blame parents because I think that parents listen to experts and a lot of the experts are really into the medical model of it hurts, take a pill. It hurts, let's get rid of the pain. Um, rather than saying, right, holistically, let's look at this child, let's look at the uh, the social or the psychosocial stressors that are causing the pain. Uh, instead, as a society, professionals, including psychiatrists and psychologists and school administrators and teachers, they're all saying, you know, let's, pediatricians included, let's just stop the pain. Um, and, and the problem is that you are introducing um, these very powerful medications. They are not to be taken lightly. They actually uh, play with the brain chemicals, the brain chemistry, and they are not to be taken lightly. And many of them will have long-term implications for, for our kids, um, but they don't really get to the bottom of the pain. So yeah, it does have to do with, instead of looking at what's really causing the stress, and much of that is their environment, and, and we are their environment. So our parenting has a lot to do with, it's not fully to blame, but it has a lot to do with what may be causing that stress. That stress could be marital conflict. That stress could be poverty. That stress could be um, uh, moving. That stress could be illness or depression or anxiety in either parents or in, in any family member. Um, that stress could be distractibility in parents. So it, it, we, what, what I'll say is that we have to look at ourselves rather than just uh, silence our kids' pain with pills. I love that. Yeah. And I just want to read you something and get your opinion. So we've been working on this ADHD diagnosis survival guide, uh, my, my wife and I, because we want parents to have something in their hands right off the bat when you get a diagnosis. It's like, ah, what do I do? Right. We wish we had something back then. And I pulled a quote from the National Institute of Health that's on their website uh, today. We first, uh, one of the things that we we asked the experts when we we're doing research is, you know, what is ADHD, right? And they had their, the, the American Psychiatric Association had their definition, CDC was slightly different, NIH was slightly different. But when we asked what is the cause, then the APA says, scientists have not yet identified the specific causes of ADHD. The CDC says the causes and risk factors for ADHD are unknown. And the NIH says, finally, after years of clinical research and experience with ADHD, our knowledge about the cause or causes of ADHD remains largely speculative, right? So they're saying, we don't know, it's not identified, it's speculative. But then on the same, on the NIH website, it later talks about the ACE study. And they say children with ADHD have higher ACE exposure compared with children without ADHD. And then they say there was a significant association between ACE score and ADHD. 
And I just go, well, wait, how can it be largely speculative and unknown at the same time there's all this research on trauma affecting our children, right? Why do you think that contradiction is allowed to still exist? And, and, and how come we're not made aware of these kind of studies more often as parents? Well, I mean, there's a lot of neuroscience research. It's not true that there's no research. There is a ton of research. Right on the causes of ADHD. Um, and a lot of it is out of the NIH. Um, I think it's not accessible to the public, but if you're interested and you look for it, it's there. Um, you know, my colleague um, who used to run the National Institute of Mental Health, you know, he put me in touch with when I was writing my first book, a lot of the researchers who were researching um, attachment insecurity and uh, the the implications to neurological development and how stress or cortisol impacts brain development. And, you know, it is quite well known if you look at books about affect regulation, people like Alan Shore or Daniel Hill. Um, Alan Shore writes volumes on the research. He is an editor of research and he writes volumes on the research of how stress impacts uh, the young developing brain. Yeah. So, it isn't true that there isn't research. It's just not accessible to the public. Why that is, I mean, I suppose you could say that um, places like the NIH are looking for statistical um, and research that can be not correlative, but actually um, you know, definitive. Mm -hmm. And I would say there is pretty much literally no um, research that's neuroscience research that isn't somewhat correlative if it has social consequences. So um, yeah, I mean, I understand where they're coming from, but there is plenty of research to right. actually show the connection. And it's more than inferential. It is actually um, uh, neuroscience research to show the connection between high levels of cortisol and distractibility. Yeah. So and we know that cortisol is the stress hormone. You know, what people don't understand is that cortisol is an adaptive hormone. It's actually uh, produced by the HPA system when we are under stress. And it is, it's adaptive in the sense that it gets the, um, it gets the whole HPA system going, um, which, you know, gets the fight or flight reaction going. Yeah. Then there's another part of the limbic system, the hippocampus that shuts down cortisol after the threat is gone. So the saber-toothed tiger is running after you. The HPA access is initiated. We're running, running, running. We're distractible. We're not meant to sit in a classroom and look at, right. the, at the board and learn things. Um, and then the hippocampus, it's what we call negative feedback loop. It comes in and it shuts the response down. So cortisol actually gets us to into a self-protective mode. Right. Yeah. Problem is when our kids are living in an environment that is chronically stressful, um, what it does is the hippocampus doesn't shut off the stress response. And these kids are always in, in that stress response. And I always use the analogy of a light bulb in the kitchen that you leave on overnight and it burns out the next day because it's been left on too long. Mm -hmm. That's what happens to the stress regulating parts of the brain and kids when we don't 
you know, when that stress response is chronic. So there is no doubt that there's a connection. Yeah. Yeah. And and the thing is, obviously, with the, the word stress, right, I think we have this idea that stress is only work stress or parents yelling or, uh, but there's tons of research and you mentioned uh, attachment, right? The attachment effect, like the, 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 the lack of nurture, lack of attachment or healthy attachment, all of that is quote unquote stressful for a child. And we don't know for which child, right? We're, we're all unique. So it, it could stress out one child's nervous system, but not another. But right. I think, I think we can both agree that having stress or repeated stress in a, in a child's life or in a traumatic event um, definitely is related to uh, distractibility, to inattentiveness, to all the, the symptoms of ADHD, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, no doubt that, that, you know, and, you know, again, the idea is that stress is not, it is, it can be in the family, it can be conflict in the family. It can be disruption in family dynamics, but it can also be, depends on how old the child is, with very young children, the foundation for resilience to stress really starts in zero to three. So we call that period the first critical window of brain development. At the end of three years of age, 85% of the right brain or the part of the brain that's responsible for emotional regulation and resilience to stress and adversity, that part of the brain is 85% cooked after three years. So in the first three years, a parent or a mother's presence physically, emotionally to process stress, we say to buffer children from stress. You know, in other parts of the world, babies are worn on their mother's bodies, skin to skin contact, which literally keeps the stress regulating part of the brain quiet because the baby isn't exposed to much stress in the first year. In this country or in any modern country in Western Europe or, you know, the idea is as soon as the baby is born, mothers go back to work very quickly. They put their babies in, in, into institutional care. Not only is that baby no longer next to their attachment object, which, which is the, you'd say it's the touchstone of their emotional security. Um, the baby is physically away from their attachment object. So, you know, they develop what we call um, defensive independence, which is they don't really organically develop emotional security and resilience to stress. They develop a kind of defensive, um, hyper defensive response. And that creates a defense that they can handle more than they actually can, but a vulnerability under that defense. So they are more likely to break down in childhood when some adversity comes along or in adolescence. Um, and so that first three years is critical to lay down the foundation for the house. And then you build the walls of the house. And then if the house is built well, it doesn't blow down in a storm. But the idea is that many of our children are not given that first three years of contact with their attachment object. Um, and what other people don't understand is that it's not just um, the physical nurturing in the first year, it's the ability to uh, what Margaret Mahler, a very famous psychoanalyst called um, rapprochement or emotional refueling, the ability to be close to your nurturing attachment object, explore the world when you're a toddler and then come back to your mother or attachment object and do that all day long. That builds the emotional security and a sense of what John Bowlby, the father of attachment, called the scaffolding. So that child can trust 
uh, the environment and feel safe in the environment, no matter what the environment is going forward. So most of our children don't have that now. Right. Yeah. And you just described the first three years of my wife and I's first child. Uh, when I when I heard about the book being there, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to mention it to my wife, but it's going to bring up some emotions. And sure enough, right, because we are now aware of the fact that in the, for the first two, three years, we were very detached. We were, you know, working. We had a nanny. We're both crazy busy. And also emotionally, I wasn't mature enough. She wasn't there. She always said, like, I feel disconnected from my boys, you know. And what you just said, I mean, it's just like clonk. Like that was enough for our son to later get diagnosed with ADHD when we were like, wait, there was no trauma. There's no, we, we didn't really have a lot of like heavy stress, but it was this constant not being tuned in, not being emotionally present and really nurturing and being there, you know, which I love the title. It's, it's really it, being there. It's projecting onto very young children, adult-like capabilities, which I think we do in this country. We don't look at, at infants and say they're fragile. We look at infants and say they're strong, they're resilient, they can take whatever we dish out. And it's just not true. Yeah. It's just, it's completely untrue. Um, they are incredibly neurologically fragile and terrified of the world. They live in a terrified state. You could say the default is fear. Yeah. And so what you're doing over that three-year period is you're creating a sense of security and safety. So, you know, we say all, all people are innocent until proven guilty. I would say all babies are fearful until they're not. And when you put them into these institutional care situations or you leave them, you are basically turning on that fear response and it stays on. Mm, yeah, that's, um, it's really, I mean, it's, it's now easier for me to hear that, you know, yeah. but as a dad researcher, when we got to the trauma, to the stress, I was interviewing uh, Stephen Porges on the polyvagal theory yeah. and Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, the shoe has dropped many times now. Yeah. Like, I get it. And while I can't put my finger on it and say it was just that one thing, there was many other factors. The main thing is is stress. And I love your your uh, quote about uh, unless uh, now I already forgot it, but it was so beautiful. Unless proven innocent, right? Like uh, unless proven guilty or innocent, and unless uh, 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 given that love and that nurturing, then you're in a fearful state. You're, you're right. right afraid of the world. And now, do you think that has to do with, I mean, if the world is a clearing that we're born into, right, as like blank canvases, we are sort of dropped into this, this world. Uh, if it's, if the state immediately is fearful, then obviously we are, we have created a world that's fear-based, that's welcoming these blank canvases and just stamps them with fear. Well, I mean, I just, I, I like to get adults to use their imagination, to mentalize, because I think many, many adults are empathically impaired today, uh, which is how you can leave your children. It's only if you are disconnected from empathy that you can leave very, very fragile infants in the care 
of strangers yeah. um, and project all adult amorphize, project all these adult-like abilities onto them. Um, and so if we are empathically impaired, we can't as adults, as parents, imagine how fragile our children feel. It would be too painful for us. So to be able to look at your baby and imagine the, imagine the world from an infant's perspective. There's a book, I think it's by Daniel Stern, uh, about it basically goes through um, a baby's life and their their imaginings because I think he wrote this book because he realized that parents and they, this was written a while ago parents did not have the capacity to think about their babies or to think about what it's like to be a baby. Mm. But if you put yourself in the baby's shoes, they are teeny tiny and they are born into this big cold, scary, overstimulating world. And the only thing between them and the abyss of fear is contact with that smiling face and big eyes and love from their mother or whoever is their primary caretaker. That is that their primary attachment figure is the buffer between them and that scary world. And if we as adults can put ourselves in that place, then we wouldn't be doing the things that we're doing with our children. Yes. As most parents do not have the capacity to mentalize, which is putting yourself, using your imagination to put yourself into your children's emotional shoes. Mm. Um, yeah. that, that prevents parents from being able to do the right thing. That's amazing. And that reminds me, I, I was uh, in a seminar on betrayal trauma and one of the things that uh, the doctor's name is Kevin Skinner. He's really big in that field um, of sex addiction and betrayal trauma. And he said that the amount of empathy we're able to give is directly related to the amount of shame that we have inside of us. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, and the, the moment I started working on the shame, there was, I was more empathetic. And I was like, okay, all right. So where's the shame coming from, right? It's transgenerational hand-me-down parenting and religion and who knows what and now we can't be present with our kids i'm still oversimplifying it but well uh, i mean there's there oxytocin is a neurotransmitter we call it the love hormone and i'm sure you've mm -hmm. had a lot about oxytocin but the idea yep. is that oxytocin receptors have to be nurtured from generation to generation we can't receive oxytocin unless we have enough oxytocin receptors it's like a pitcher and a catcher in a baseball game right mm -hmm. Um, the mother pitches the oxytocin to the baby by loving the baby and kissing the baby and touching the baby and, you know, cooing and gurgling at the baby and vocalizing. And then the baby catches the oxytocin, right? Like catching the ball and then smiles and gurgles and then can pass it back to the mother. It's like, it's like a, a game of catch. Yeah. 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 But the baby can only catch it if they have receptors. The more a mother loves the baby, the more the receptors develop and grow. Mm. But what we know is that if a mother herself, when she was a baby, wasn't nurtured, she, she actually has reduced oxytocin receptors, and that is passed down generationally to the next generation. So if she has less of a capacity to receive the oxytocin, she has less of a capacity to both give the oxytocin to her baby, but also to pass down the receptors to her baby. And so there we can see kind of 
generational transmission of actually neurological capabilities. I mean, it really changes our biology, whether we're nurtured or not changes our biology. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw some research that uh, oxytocin and, and uh, dopamine are directly related, that if there is less dopamine being, I don't know the technical terms, but less dopamine, then less, uh, sorry, less oxytocin, less dopamine. And therefore, yeah. when we say, oh, these kids have a dopamine, you know, um, what do we call it? A, a, a low dopamine levels. Well, I'm not, again, blaming the parents for not being loving or not being good parents, but it, it has been proven. I think even uh, oxytocin was given to kids with autism and yeah. a, a nasal spray. And, it, and you it, know the woman who's, who was behind that company. Yeah. 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 And so, so to me, what you're saying is, is, is not only beautiful, but also so potent uh, to, to look at the fact that maybe are we not being present enough with our kids? Are we not nurturing them enough? Are we not, and this is my wife and I always say, we have to, as parents, heal our own shit because it's in between us and the children, right? Like you said, we can't be empathetic if there's shame, if there's lack of nurture, lack of the oxytocin receptors and all that stuff. You know, that's our responsibility. That's how I see it, but... Well, so Alan Shore, again, I mentioned his name again, wrote a book called The Science and Art of, of Psychotherapy. And it is about how actually therapy actually changes the neurological architecture of the brain in patients, in adult patients. So mm -hmm. they do brain scans of a patient before therapy, talk therapy, not medication, before talk therapy, uh, what we call psychodynamics feelings-oriented therapy, not behavioral therapy, uh, where you go in and talk about your feelings and become attached to your therapist and the relationship is continuous. And then they do scans a year later and they actually can see the difference in the architecture of the brain. They can see that the right brain develops and is more active. And so why is that important? Because the second book that I wrote is called Chicken Little, uh, The Sky Isn't Falling, uh, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. It basically talks about a lot, a lot about how parents need to work on themselves to be able to parent adolescents so they are more resilient. Um, not all the time. Sometimes parents have been raised with a lot of love. There's a lot of you know, potential in those parents. Not every parent needs to go into therapy, but the idea is uh, the more you work on conflicts and um, th things that are struggles for you from your childhood, the better you can parent those mm. children. Um, it's sort that. of taking responsibility as parents for um, for our children's um, inability to regulate their emotions. And until now, society has given parents uh, a green light to say, it's not your fault. Nothing's your fault. It's yes. not about you. It's all about them. And that is the wrong message. And I can't tell you how I fight that message in my books, in my writing, when I publicly speak, uh, in my practice as a parent guidance expert, because again, it is absolutely false. Yeah. Um, we have everything to do with how our children turn out. I, and I will fight with you till the yes. end of my living days. Anytime you need an extra fighter, because 
I remember watching a Dr. Phil episode where a Pfizer spokesperson or executive came on. And I remember at some point she was turning to the camera and she says, parents, it's not your fault. It's not due to bad parenting. And I was like, I know what you're saying and what you're trying to communicate here. And I know how it's going to land. But that is sending the wrong message because parents go, oh, good. So I have nothing to do. That's it's my right. Kid. Let me just get the pills. It must be just something biological. Let me just yep. medicate them. Oh. And, 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 you know, what I say to parents is, look, it, it, this is emotional dysregulation. There is an origin to emotional dysregulation. It comes from somewhere. You know, you need to ask, where does emotional dysregulation come from? And, and there you will find your answers. And what we do yes. know is that emotional regulation is, is born in the first three years of a baby's life. And it is, it is a continuous thing. We have another opportunity in adolescence um, as parents to make a difference because in adolescence, which is nine to 25, what we know is it's the second critical window of brain development, of right brain development. And what that means is because the brain, so think of neurogenesis. And I know you've had people on before that have talked about this between zero to three, 85% of right brain neurogenesis or uh, brain cell development has, has happened. Uh, between three and nine, the rest of it has happened. Now we have too much neurogenesis. We have too many cells and that can be as bad as not having enough cells. So then what we need to do is what I like to call topiary. You know what topiary is, you know, where you shave down the bushes to make animals. Oh. You're, basically, <laughs> yeah. you're basically pruning, pruning the bushes. Everybody knows how to yep. prune the backyard. The brain gets pruned and it gets reorganized. So there's a reorganizing and a pruning that happens between nine and 25. That is as critical to the brain's development as zero to nine. And so in, in that nine to 25 window, parents are a very big part of a child's de development and their environment and are very responsible for how that brain ultimately turns out in terms of emotional regulation, resilience to stress, executive functioning, impulse control. This is all parents have another chance in that second critical window of brain development to make a big difference in terms of whether that child is emotionally healthy or not. I, I love that you said dysregulation because that was one of our uh, final recent conclusion. We just simply said it's not a disorder, it's a dysregulation, right? The issue yeah. is not that there's something wrong, but we need to find out why is this system dysregulated and then go to work on that. And mm -hmm. why I just... Again, this is kind of a, I don't know what type of question, but my question would be like, how come parents are either not aware of that or not willing to do the work? I, I like to say they're not aware of it, which is why I wrote the book. I, I actually have a lot of faith in parents and hope for parents that if they knew, if they only knew, um, and they knew that they they can have more control than they think, um, that they would be very excited to have this information. I don't think this information is that readily available. I think part of it is that even in the therapeutic community, even amongst therapists, there is a lot of trepidation around making parents feel guilty. And the way that I look at guilt is that guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is what we call a signal feeling, whether we are leaving our babies in daycare and have other choices and we feel guilty, 
that guilt is instructive. It is like physical pain. So we call physical pain a signal feeling. If uh, funny, because I just broke my toe, I stubbed my toe on a weight bench. Oh, and no. I broke my toe, yeah. So, and I was in terrible pain. Oh. Now, I could keep working out and running and whatever, but my body wouldn't let me because it said, this is hurting. You got to go see a doctor. So I went to a doctor and I, he said, you know, it's broken. This is what you need. So we know that signal feelings matter, physical pain, emotional pain. Guilt means that a human being is in a state of internal conflict. And if we just brush away our conflicts as society tells us to, and not feel guilty about whether we're leaving our children are very fragile, um, neurologically fragile young children in institutional care, uh, or whether we, you know, whether we have adolescents and we're putting them on medication before we've tried every other kind of talk therapy treatment uh, and mindfulness training treatment, that guilt is instructive because it gets us to examine ourselves and examine our internal conflicts. If we did not feel guilty, we would have no connection to our conscience, no connection to our egos that are functioning. So I don't see guilt as a bad thing. I see it as a signal feeling like pain that says, whoa, something, you are in conflict here. Let's look at this conflict so you can make better decisions for yourself and your family. Yeah. Yeah, we we call it the check engine light, right? It's like something's not working. That's right. That's right. You know, um, now parents are not aware of it. Uh, I'm assuming it's for several reasons. One is because they don't maybe have the time to do the research, but also the mainstream narrative isn't quite. I, I call it a one-sided and incomplete for parents. I'm not saying it's false or it's a lie or you know, but I just often feel like parents can't know more because they're not. In the mainstream, they're just not given this information that, for example, you and I are talking about right now, right? For me now, it's almost common knowledge at this point, and I'm super into it. But for some of the new parents I talk to, they're like, well, no, not real stress. What? No trauma? No, there's no trauma here. Like, well, what are you talking about? It just seems so uh, alien to them because we're not talking about it. I also think that parents, again, have a hard time seeing their children in distress and then also have a hard time feeling guilty or feeling responsible for their children's stress. And, you know, it is, we, we have defenses as adults, as human beings, as parents to protect us from feeling fragile. And I think there are a lot of parents out there that feel very guilty, very responsible, very fragile. And they have denial is, we say denial is more than just a river in Egypt. It's a great defense if it works. So is repression if it works. But but the problem is that our children become the lightning rods for our our vulnerability uh, Mm -hmm. and our conflicts. And they become the barometer of how we're doing as parents. And they often tell us that we're not doing well with their behavior. And then it breaks down our defenses, but it often means we have to have a symptomatic child. Whether that in the book I talk about this, whether you have a child with an eating disorder or a child with ADHD or a child who has depression or anxiety or some kind of addiction, uh, to gaming or addiction to drugs, or um, it's it is our children become um, they become the barometers of really how we are doing as as adults. Um, yeah. And I think it's hard for a lot of adults to um, to really examine themselves. I don't think we're a country that 
that promotes self-examination. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. We There's so much therapy in this country. Like if I talk to my, I'm from Switzerland originally, I talk to my Swiss friends, none of them are in therapy. None of them have ever been to therapy. And this is like maybe five, six, seven guys, some girl, you know, here, everybody I know has a therapist and a coach and, a, you know, but why is there a disconnect? Because uh, I agree with you. I think I think there's different kinds of therapy. That's the other thing, hopefully, that my book examines. And the different kinds of therapy um, mean that not all therapy is the same. You know, you'd say just like not all um, medicine is the same, right? You have different specialties of medicine for very different things. People think that therapy is therapy is therapy. First of all, I'll t I'm going to give you the common, the most common myths about therapy. One, that you go to a psychiatrist for therapy. Okay, let me clear that myth up. Most psychiatrists, not all, there are some psychiatrists in, in the old days when um, uh, 75 years ago, when psychoanalysis was very young in this country, 100 years ago, um, psych psychiatrists became psychoanalysts, meaning they, they did training to become talk therapists. Today, most psychiatrists are psychopharmacologists. That means they are trained to treat uh, mental health issues with medication alone. They have very short residencies in their programs um, that uh, in terms of talking to patients, but they have no in-depth training about uh, deep psychodynamic psychotherapy, none. And there is no requirement for psychiatrists to be in any kind of therapy themselves. That is a mistake. So that's the first mistake. Parents say, I'm going to take my kid to a psychiatrist first. I'm like, no, 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 that's not the first stop. <laughs> Psychiatrists will medicate your child. First, take your child to an adolescent or child talk psychotherapist or play therapist if your child is young enough. Um, they are trained to help treat your child relationally. Okay. And they will help diagnose whether your child actually needs a consult for medication. So first mistake, people go to psychiatrists thinking, oh, they're MDs. They're the best. They are not the best for everything. They are the best for medication. But most of the time, your child probably will not need medication if you um, do this sequentially in order, which is get them to a good talk therapist or play therapist first. And this is before, before the diagnosis, because the diagnosis is usually carried out by psychologists, right? Or and so um, it, the psychologist, sometimes school psychologists uh, will point out that a child seems to have some kind of ADHD or have some kind of behavioral issue. Sometimes they'll send uh, kids to a psychological evaluator. They are psychologists who do evaluation. They do a series of tests, objective tests, and they can tell whether your child has a learning issue, whether your child suffers from being on the spectrum, whether your child may suffer from anxiety or depression. Um, many people go there first, but you don't need to go there first. You can go to a talk therapist first because we are trained. I'm a psychoanalyst. We are trained to also be able to help you understand, is this child treatable with just talk uh, or play psychotherapy? The other common mistake is that people get cognitive behavioral therapy confused with psychodynamic psychotherapy. What does that mean? One is based on cognitive or thoughts. It's based on changing thinking. So it's all left brain. I'm going to work on the left brain of this child and therefore it's going to regulate the right brain. 
And that just for most people that doesn't work because the, the disorder is in the right brain. And so psychodynamic psychotherapy treats the right brain because it's relational, because it goes back to the source again, the source, CBT therapy or cognitive behavioral is symptom relief. But in terms of going back to the source, if the source is relational, relational stress, then you have to go back to having a relationship. Uh, I guess it's a terrible analogy and I hate to use it, but I'm going to use it. You know, they say if you get hungover, you go back to uh, uh, a hair of the dog that bit you. So, right, you do whatever. This is the idea of going back to the source, which is if the source of the stress was relational, which most stress is for children, then you have to have a deep, loving, nurturing relationship with the therapist to heal that part of the brain. So most people don't know that CPT can be wonderful for things like dealing with obsessive behavior, adolescents who cannot express their feelings verbally. There are some adolescents who need CBT or DBT, uh, which is um, uses workbooks, all left brain oriented. Um, and, and so there are good uses for CBT and DBT, but it, again, it is not the first place I would go with a child who has the capacity to express their feelings either through play or through their words. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what kind of therapy, when to go for a certain therapy, but what we know is it's not all the same. Yeah, no, thank you for for, uh, splitting the, the hairs on that because it's, I don't often hear that, you know, we just think therapy or workshops or, you know, uh, behavioral stuff. And uh, so I appreciate that. I'm going to go back and listen to that again for myself and do a bit more research on that as well. Um, Now, talk to me about school, our education system and the stress, right? Schools are a place of evaluation and stress. How does that affect our children at an early age? There's much more academic pressure on children from a very young age um, to be competitive. We want our children to be competitive because we are a very competitive country and everybody wants their children to be president and everybody wants their children to go to Harvard. Not everybody, but, you know, even amongst, um, you know, populations that previously wouldn't have said, I'm going to go to Harvard. Now everybody wants to go to Harvard. The problem with that mentality is what it does is it um, creates pressure and stress at a very, very young age. Um, And and what we know is that young children cannot cope with that kind of academic pressure and stress at a young age. And I like to think of it um, that schools have become very left brain oriented, very cognitively based rather than social emotionally based at a young age. And that's a problem because the analogy I'll use is focusing on a child's social emotional development, play, play play-based learning when children are young is the equivalent of putting your socks on before you put your shoes on, call your shoes, your left brain cognitive development. We're really into flashcards and teaching children how to read and head start programs. And so that's very left brain oriented as opposed to helping children to become right brain literate. 
um, teaching children to become social, emotionally intelligent. And that has to do with nurturing. It has to do with addressing feelings. It has to do with play-based and experiential learning. We don't do that in this country. We very quickly get on the bandwagon and put your shoes on before your socks. And again, what it does is it creates a very fragile child. And the reason for that is we need our social emotional brain as the stability on which we base our learning. We have to be able to deal with frustration when we learn. So a lot of ADHD is also kind of turning away from frustration. Um, we need to be able to cope with frustration, get through frustration, sit with frustration. That's social emotional uh, learning is good for helping to build resilience to frustration, right? We know that. So then a child can absorb more and learn more left brain. So we are really doing it backwards in this country. And so what I'm hearing, you know, that the United States is a very loud country. When I came from Europe, it was like the cowboy, the world police, right? The loud, look at me kind of country. And what I've learned over the years and what I'm hearing, what you're saying, it's kind of like underneath that is really a uh, a thinking of a, or a feeling of like, I don't, I don't matter. I'm not good enough. And so therefore a Harvard degree and a bigger career, better career, more money is going to make us feel like we matter. So therefore I need to do this for my kids, right? It's all driven by a fear ultimately of not being good enough. I mean, I agree. I, I think you're talking about a value system of how we define success and that if we define success as academic accomplishment or material achievement later on, if that's how we introduce the idea of success to our children, then they absorb that, right? We model for them. Our, our version of, of success is our value system that we then generationally pass down to our children. And if we are communicating to our children that success is based on high achievement, then what we know is that if children can't be for one reason or another, whether they have a learning issue or whether they have an emotional fragility, or whether they just may not be that motivated academically or that interested, what we tell them is you're a failure um, and, and they feel like failures. So in other words, you know, when I grew up, I'm almost 60, but when I grew up, you know, the idea that there were kids who were very motivated and they maybe got A's, but then the rest of the kids got B's and C's and that was good enough. And everybody sort of fell in where they fell in based on their abilities, based on, their, I mean, there were a lot of problems back then too, but there wasn't this sense that everybody has to be uh, a lawyer. Everybody has to be a doctor. Everybody has to go to Harvard. And it starts when you're five. And if you can't read and you can't write and you can't do math when you're six years old, you're not going to be, you know, at the top of the heap. And that has caused our kids to live in a constant state of worry, anxiety, competitiveness, and pressure. Mm. And so we have basically put our children in a vice, literally in an emotional vice around what success means. Well said, and it's landing very heavily, you know, that we are doing this to our children. Like you said, they're so, they're such fragile little beings, right? At an early age, even with my 12 year old, he's still such a, a young being, you know, that, that any stress still impacts his system. And, and I'm glad I'm starting to recognize it. I was certainly wasn't present in the first 
three years. I should have read your book back then, but you know, uh, it is what it is. Um, but tell me about overdiagnosis and overmedication. Um, you have, you had talked about it in, in, in your interview and in another article, and I'm sure you talk a bit about that in your new book, uh, as well, not to turn to medication right away. How can, what can we do? What, I mean, this seems like we can't stop it. It's just rolling forward. Well, you know, I, again, I think knowledge goes a long way. If parents are knowledgeable, if they are consumers, you always have to be consumers with your health, right? Um, you have to know, uh, you have to know things that um, you can go knowledgeably to the pediatrician and say, I would like a referral to a psychoanalytic psychotherapist or a play therapist for my child. So you go to your pediatrician and say, my child is showing signs of stress. There are some family issues. Do you have a recommendation? Because I think pediatricians can be good resources, but you have to instruct them what you need. You mm -hmm. can't go to them and ask them what you need about mental health uh, because they're not experts. And most of them do not know. They, I can tell you that I teach pediatricians, and many of them do not know anything about what we're talking about. They will refer children directly to either CBT therapists just to rid them of symptoms because it's symptom relief. It's as good as an emotional pill. Uh, it's a cognitive pill. Um, or they will send them to a psychiatrist right away for medication. So it's so. What do we say? We say that the medical model is about treating symptoms, ridding people of symptoms. Uh, that's the medical model. And so yeah. if you go to a doctor, they're going to, they're going to tell you how you can get rid of the symptoms. Um, whereas if you go to them and you don't know people in your area that you can go to and you go to them and you say, I would like to see a play therapist for my child to start. That's where I would like to start. I want a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic play therapist for my child. Can you give me a referral? They will. And if they don't know of someone, they will find someone for you. Um, but you have to be a consumer because many of the pediatricians don't know this stuff. Um, and they will, if you talk to someone in the medical profession, they are going to lead you down that medical model. And I think you want to move away from that, at least to start, you may end up there. There are many children who do benefit from some medication, um, but I would say very, very few in comparison to those that are medicated. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is no one is asking, gosh, what might be causing this in the home? Very few pediatricians even do what, what I call a psychosocial stressor evaluation of a family. Tell me what's going on. Is there stress in the family? Is there marital conflict? Uh, what kinds of pressures do you have? Is there financial uh, pressure? Is, you know, is there a lot of, uh, you know, are you moving? Are, is someone ill in your family? It's, it's very often that they don't even have that dialogue with parents. Um, and so, yeah, you've got to find your way to, um, to a, a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic psychotherapist. That's where you start. I love that because ultimately it starts with us, right? We can't stop this big snowball avalanche thing because we're just a small part of it. But I, what I'm hearing, and, and, and I hate to put it that way, but it's, um, it's almost like question our experts. And not so much that they aren't experts at something, but knowing what their expertise is and not blindly trusting the rest, sort of fill in the blank knowledge they have, right? But knowing what we need, uh, 
and then questioning for good reason, just saying, hey, is this your expertise? And I'm looking for someone like this. Can you recommend someone? I think is a great, brilliant suggestion. I like that. You know, you don't go to a plumber for your electrical work and you don't go to an electrician for your plumbing. And that's the best way to describe it. So um, a, a pediatrician is not going to necessarily, I mean, you have to really come equipped with the knowledge of what you're seeking. And so the books I write hopefully educate parents as to what to look for and what to ask for. Mm, that's great. Um, and we will make uh, uh, have links in our show notes to your books, to your uh, uh, website, and, and what other other ways parents can uh, contact you, right? Uh, and I love uh, sharing that with our listeners. And uh, one one last thing I want to ask you is that something you mentioned is that this idea of self diagnosis and why that's not a good thing that in our society now, parents, not just adults, but parents, are diagnosing their kids at home. Uh, on their own, for example? Mm -hmm. Well, again, you know, the idea is that um, knowledge is important and parents should have the knowledge, but, um, and, and knowledge should uh, be the first step in getting you to the right professional. But the idea is you don't want to, um, you know, you don't want to assume anything based on this knowledge. You want to get to the right professional. We know that that it's very important to get help for your children and adolescents very early on in the process of seeing something. Um, and, and the reason for that is, um, you know, when children are symptomatic or first show signs of stress, um, there is an opportunity, a window of opportunity to help them. And if you don't get help for them, then what often happens is they develop defenses and their symptoms submerge and go underground only to come back later with a vengeance or they get um, or kids become entrenched in in behaviors that are harder to treat. So we know that 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 the sooner you get professional help, it's fine to learn things from the books that I write and my colleagues write, and then be able to identify. So there's in each of my chapters, I have lists, uh, ways that parents can start to evaluate and think about what's going on with their child. As soon as they see that their child may have a number of these symptoms for at least two, two weeks, um, because what we talk about is intensity and chronicity to know whether your child needs help. Um, so as soon as you know your child has a number of these symptoms and has them for a certain period of time, that is the time to reach out for help, not to be a turtle and go back into your shell and say, my child will outgrow it and everything's going to be fine. Because the sooner we get to these uh, mental health issues, the better off the treatment goes, the better off the child is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm just listening and I'm letting it all in because obviously I'm, I'm also comparing what we're doing with our son, what we have been doing. And so I will uh, definitely devour those areas of the book and, and discuss those uh, with my wife. Now, lastly, I think the term ADHD should be changed. That's my personal opinion. I know we argue that we need some kind of shorthand, some kind of terminology to treat children. But uh, what do you think? I mean, I think it's a disempowering label. It's run its course. Should we change it? Um, yes, I do. Um, I, I think, you know, we could talk about attentional symptoms as opposed to a disorder. I think when we call it a disorder, 
Um, the, the problem is that people assume that it is in, in and of itself a disorder. Um, it's like how people label alcoholism. They say, oh, alcoholism is about alcohol. You just have to give up the alcohol, it's behavioral. We know that alcohol or any addiction is not about the substance. Alcohol is about depression. It's about anxiety. It's about trauma. It's about loss. So taking the disorder out of the term ADHD um, and, and really referring to it as a symptom rather than a disorder, I think would be helpful um, because I think when we label disorders, uh, when we label something a disorder, it can seem in and of itself to be a condition. And it just isn't the case. These are symptoms of stress. And so we need to think about them differently. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. I, I, I totally agree. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, leave parents with? Anything, uh, uh, you know, they've just had a diagnosis on their hand or they're struggling. Uh, any last words of, of uh, wisdom uh, before we sign off? Well, just that there's hope. And, you know, if you are listening to this and you have very young children, um, we know that, that that being there as much as possible physically and emotionally in those first three years is critical to lay down the foundation. But what we know as well is that um, in this second critical window of nine to 25, um, you have a great deal of influence in this period of brain reorganization to really set the stage for the rest of their lives. After 25, you're out of luck. Um, and after, you know, and it, it even becomes harder after they move out of the house because you have less contact with them, but not impossible because college kids will, and kids who leave home at 18 or 19, they will give you opportunities to help them. And as long as you are present enough in those opportunities, you can still help them even if they're in college, but it's much easier if they're living at home. So, but we know, we know that from nine to 25, as parents, you have a second chance. Wonderful. Well, Erica, I know you're busy and you are going on a trip and I just appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me for this uh, episode. And I can't wait to share this with parents worldwide and congratulations on your new book. And uh, I, maybe there, we'll do a part two sometime in the future because I really enjoyed I our conversation. That. I Great. would love that. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Happy holidays. You too.